This is the sound of tens of thousands of protesters in Washington earlier this week. From all over America, people came together at the weekend in solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza, demanding US support for a ceasefire. Many global leaders are feeling the pressure, especially US President Joe Biden. With global calls for a ceasefire and criticism intensifying of Biden's handling of the conflict, the US is sounding a tougher tone with Israel on trying to reduce civilian casualties in the Gaza Strip. Biden is calling for more aid into Gaza and has spoken to Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, about temporary and localised pauses. But at the same time, the US has been firmly opposed to calls for a ceasefire. What they say to me is I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. The US is Israel's most important ally. In the days following the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel, Biden visited the country and expressed his staunch support for Netanyahu, even though the two of them had previously had a very frosty relationship. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has held several meetings with Netanyahu and with Arab leaders since the start of the conflict, and international sentiment so far is against an Israeli occupation of Gaza. In another development this week, the only Palestinian American in Congress, Rashida Tlaib, was given a formal reprimand by other politicians. This censure came after she repeatedly called for a ceasefire in Gaza and spoke out against Israel's attacks on the Palestinian territory. As we recorded this episode, the White House announced that Israel has agreed to pause military operations in northern Gaza for four hours a day from November the 9th to allow access for humanitarian aid and to allow for the eventual exit of hostages. So, what is the general consensus on how President Biden is handling this conflict? With the US presidential elections only a year away, does Biden have to get this right? This is Beyond the Headlines, and I'm Thomas Watkins, the Washington Bureau Chief for The National. In this episode, we examine the Gaza conflict from the US perspective. To help us explore this subject, we spoke to Josh Rubner, an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Justice and Peace Studies program, and to Leila El-Haddad, who is an award-winning Palestinian author, social activist, policy analyst, and journalist. Thank you both very much for joining me on Beyond the Headlines. Today, we're gonna to be delving into the Israel-Gaza war, the view from the US, and how the Biden administration has been handling the crisis. I'd like to start, if I may, by asking each of you to give me your perspectives on this and how you rate President Joe Biden's actions since October the 7th. Leila, if I could start with you, please. I honestly don't know where to begin. I apologize. I'm somewhat at a loss for words. Late last night, several members of my close family were killed. My aunt and four of my cousins. Can I just say, of course, how how very sorry I am to hear about your your personal news. This is this is terrible. Do do you have any information about what happened? Were they given any warning? Do you know where they were when this this terrible thing happened? We don't. People don't even have time or space or ability to grieve or mourn anymore or bury their dead. They're finding them in pieces. They they were literally found in pieces. And no, they weren't. It was them and their neighbors, as I understand, were both killed in an Israeli strike. Both of the houses were bombed. But we've 
I think as a community of Palestinians, and I apologize, this is kind of taking us off point from your question, has we've I was just reflecting on how we have these almost virtual morgues now where we have these community groups of Palestinians from Gaza in the US and every morning and we we scroll through and we try to see who from the group has lost a loved one and then we scroll through the names and we scroll through the local news WhatsApp ticker and we try to identify if any members of our that's the only way we can find out but but again that reality is not reflected by the Biden administration's words or speech or actions. And that has real life consequences, not only on Palestinians over there in Gaza, but on the Palestinian community, the Arab community, the Muslim community, people of color here in the United States. And for him, it's one thing for the Israelis to say, and then for Biden to repeat these kinds of these, this rhetoric, this dehumanizing rhetoric is playing right into their hands and essentially this dehumanization, this othering, then gives Israel this moral pretext to do as it wishes, because Palestinians are now the unhumans, right, to which the laws of war don't apply. Or in another brilliant quote by Biden, we're just the cost of war, right? The more than 4,000 children that have been killed so far are just the cost of war. He also drew some, obviously, last week when he said that he took a he took issue with the some of the death tolls that were being provided by the Gaza Health Ministry. He sort of appeared to be downplaying the veracity of those reports. Right. I mentioned in the beginning how he was casting doubt even on that. Right. We can't, as a people, even die in dignity. Even our deaths are are being questioned. Yeah, Josh. If we could bring you into the conversation, how would you how would you um, rate the Biden administration response so far? Well, Tom, I'm a historian by training, and I'm currently finishing my PhD dissertation on the Truman administration's policies toward the Palestinian Nakba from 1947 to 1949. So, as a historian, I look back on the Truman administration to try to understand how it dealt with Israel's Nakba against the Palestinian. Uh, community in in 1948 and to compare and contrast this with the Biden administration. Look, the Truman administration placed an arms embargo on Palestine in late 1947. It forbade the export of any U.S. weapons to any party in the fighting and actually took measures to arrest Zionist organizations that were attempting to export weapons to Palestine to fight Palestinians. The Truman administration never, ever gave Israel a green light to commit acts of ethnic cleansing, never, ever supported the forced displacement of Palestinians from their home, never supported any genocidal action that Israel took toward the Palestinians in 1947, 1948, 1949, and beyond. Let's not forget that it was the United States that actually wrote UN Declaration, excuse me, UN General Assembly Resolution 194, which demanded that Palestinian refugees have the right of return. This was sponsored by the United States. And President Truman himself said that he was disgusted by how Israel had displaced the Palestinian people and refused to allow them to return home. So despite all of the many, many moral and political failures of the Truman administration during the Nakba, we can point to all of these things 
as clear contrasts with the way that the Biden administration, I can't put this more frankly, has greenlighted Israel's genocidal actions toward Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. But it also supported the forcible displacement from their homes of more than a million Palestinians. When you look at the numbers of fatalities now in less than one month, we are already approaching the number of Palestinians killed by Israel in 1948. It's it's beyond the zero point and clearly into the negative scale. Thank you, Josh. You use some very strong language there in terms of couching this as a genocide and ethnic cleansing. But I think it's important that we always remember what the preface was to the Israeli strike on Gaza. And a lot of these conversations that we're having, we we must always make note that Hamas attacked Israel on October the 7th. And 1,400 Israelis did die that day. And we know that something like 220 are still missing. So that you've you've given some very interesting historical scope there. But would you not say that the events of October 7th were unprecedented and therefore require an unprecedented response? Well, I would agree with the first part of that question, Tom. It definitely was unprecedented in the scale of violence that was inflicted against Israeli civilians. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that any deliberate attack against civilians is not permissible under the laws of war and is a war crime. And people who committed those actions should be held accountable for those actions, because I believe that international law is not for people and actors to pick and choose from. Everyone should be held to the exact same standards. So you have no no quibble from me about that. And the attacks were horrific and terrible. And I know people who were personally impacted by them, as well as many Palestinians who have been impacted by this horrific violence as well. But I would not agree with the contention that Israel's response should be unprecedented as well. Because the commission of a war crime does not permit another actor to engage in similar war crimes or worse levels of war crimes. One war crime does not justify another, basically, is what I'm saying. So under the rules of law, Israel has an obligation that it cannot derogate from to abide by the laws of war. And that means no deliberate attacks against civilian targets. It means that any attacks need to be proportionate and not cause uh, indiscriminate harm toward civilians when it's clearly expected. And I'll just point out just one example of the many atrocities and one of the many ways in which Israel is violating the laws of war with its attack a few days ago against the Palestinian refugee camp in Jabalia. This was an an attack that allegedly targeted uh, an alleged Hamas ringleader of October 7th, but it killed dozens of Palestinian civilians a circumstance that the Israeli military knew that there would be these civilian fatalities. And Israel brushed it off. And let's, again, talk more about the complicity of the U.S. here, because weapons experts believe that the bombs that Israel dropped on Palestinian refugees in Jabalia were GBU bombs fitted with JDAMs, Joint Direct Attack Munitions, which make dumb bombs smart bombs. And these were all given to Israel by U.S. taxpayers as part of this huge package of weapons that Israel gets. This is what I mean when I talk about how the United States and the Biden administration in particular is complicit in Israel's atrocities. 
So to your point, I actually cover the Pentagon and we've been hearing many comments from various officers and spokespeople this week. And they repeatedly have stressed that there's conversations going on between uh, Secretary Lloyd Austin and his Israeli counterpart, urging them to take into account the laws of war as they plan and conduct their operations. And they say that they want to make sure Israel is distinguishing between terrorists and civilians. Uh, This is a direct quote now from the Pentagon spokesman. We've also seen in the last week some some shift in the messaging from the Biden administration, where they do more more continually bring up the idea of persuading Israel to try to avoid civilian casualties. Um, Do you see any change in the last week or so in terms of um, an abatement of some of the 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 deaths that could have been avoided? Or is it clear that Israel is not listening to what the US is telling it? I think that there has been a certain change of tone from the Biden administration. And I think that that's been the result of unprecedented internal pressure coming from within the administration and external pressure from Palestinian Americans, from everyday Americans who are fed up with seeing night after night how their tax dollars are being used to commit genocidal acts against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. People are out in the streets in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions, to protest U.S. policy. And so the Biden administration is feeling this pressure, yes. And it's causing them to change the tone of some of their statements about the situation, but it's not having any impact whatsoever in terms of Israel's actions. As usual, Israel is just disregarding whatever the United States says. The only way that the bombs are going to stop is if the United States demands it. And if it cuts off weapons flows to Israel, as is required by U.S. law, when U.S. weapons are being used to commit these gross violations of human rights. Leila, would you agree with um, Josh's point that um, the Israeli military doesn't seem to be listening to the advice it's hearing from the Pentagon or from the Biden administration? Why would they listen if if they were told that they have absolutely no red lines? And as Josh said, this is being greenlighted. Israeli ministers themselves from day one have said, we are going to deprive them, them being the civilians, the population, the 2.2 million People, most of them refugees, all of them blockaded and besieged for more than 16 years and occupied for much longer, we are going to deprive them of food, water, fuel, and electricity. And the fact that the best our administration can do is talk about or boast about the hours they spend trying to get Israel to turn a pipeline on of water, which, by the way, never ended up happening, I I just learned, not why they are allowing Israel to turn the water off in the first place is just mind-boggling to me. It's just, I know we're talking policy here and weapons and and taxes, but I just, again, I'm left kind of shaking my head at the audacity of, of all of this. And the fact that we're still debating about the language that, that Biden is using. And yes, it has changed a bit because it, they've been forced to change, but it's had zero impact. And I don't suspect it'll have any impact <laughs> There needs there needs to be real consequences. The the words need to be met with action, as Josh said. Thank you. And and to the earlier point about um, American munitions being used in Gaza, the Pentagon has repeatedly said in recent days and weeks that there are no monitoring processes in place, there are no limits, and there's no accountability. Um, 
So on the one hand, they're saying we want Israel to operate within the uh, law of law of war, and on the other, they have no idea how any of these U.S. taxpayer provide U.S. taxpayer funded munitions are being expended, and so it's a topic that comes up a lot here. And I should add, they have no plan or idea how this is going to play out. And this is from meetings that I've had with with different members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, with Blinken himself, all saying they have no idea what the plan is. And they keep urging the Israelis, it would be nice if you let us know what your end goal is here, because we're a little concerned about how this might play out. Really? There's no plan, no red lines, total green lighting, unlimited aid and weapons. So America and Israel are already becoming um, more isolated on the world stage. We've seen a rift with some Arab countries. Uh, Jordan and Bahrain, notably, have pulled their ambassadors to Israel. How do you see this, um, Leila, we'll, we'll stick with you to, to start with. How do you see this playing out over the coming weeks and months um, if there is no let-up in terms of the Israeli military's uh, strike rate on Gaza? I just keep thinking of apocalyptic scenarios, forgive me, but I can't think of any other way that this might play out, except that there is enough pressure, again, from non-power brokers, meaning the people, and potentially, potentially, but I again, I don't really have, I'm not pinning any hopes on this, potentially from Hezbollah if things get really bad. So as, as we were recording this conversation today, we were hearing from the Pentagon today that there are now unarmed drone flights over Gaza. And these are ostensibly to provide assistance in locating the hostages. Um, do you see that this increased US involvement as a significant step? And do you see it perhaps portending a greater uh, US presence on the ground? I do think it is a very significant development. And I do think here again, we're in really unprecedented waters. The United States has never fought on Israel's behalf before. It is, to a large degree, a co-belligerent with Israel in its attacks against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. And I'll tell you why I say that. It's not only the, the, the drones that are flying over the Gaza Strip. It's also the fact that the U.S. has moved two battleship groups into the Mediterranean. It's the fact that U.S. missiles have shot down incoming missiles uh, from Yemen. It's the fact that on dozens of occasions, I believe, U.S. military facilities in Iraq and Syria have been attacked as a result of U.S. support for Israel's actions in the Gaza Strip. And so there are potentially catastrophic scenarios that could unfold where the U.S. is drawn into much more active role in fighting alongside Israel. And the U.S. has made it quite clear that it's prepared to take any measure should this escalate to include Hezbollah on a larger scale or Iran or other regional actors. The Biden administration has made it quite clear that it's ready to throw in with Israel to fight alongside it. So Americans who somehow are watching this and don't care that their weapons are being used to kill Palestinian children, at least they should be concerned about the fact that U.S. troops might be dying on behalf of Israel if this does not come to a, a, an end soon. 
So the demand needs to be for an immediate ceasefire to stop uh, the deterioration in the situation and to prevent any further harm. Otherwise, the U.S. is just contributing to the harm. Well, very recently, we saw um, Nasrallah say that Hezbollah do consider themselves to be at war with Israel. Do you see this tipping now into a regional conflict? I think it already is a regional conflict. I think the only thing that we don't know at this point is to what extent will it become a full-blown regional conflict with other potential actors throwing in all the means at their disposals uh, to confront Israel and its actions. That we haven't seen yet. Switching gears a little bit. Leila, here at the Nationals Washington Bureau, we've been doing a lot of reporting about how the Arab American, Palestinian American, Muslim American communities are reacting to the Biden administration's approach to this conflict. And we've been hearing from the mayor of Dearborn. We've been hearing from lots of figures in the community that um, this is this is going to really hurt Biden in 2024. Is that something that you're seeing among the community? Oh, absolutely. I personally live in a very blue state. I'm in Maryland, so I don't know that it'll matter much here. But for states like Michigan, it will absolutely matter. And this is what the polling is showing. Shibli Telhami, I know, had recently released some 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 polling data, as well as Jim Zorbi, showing just that. Again, how sustained this will be, it remains to be seen. But I've never seen this level of discontent amongst the Arab and Muslim community since 9-11, I can tell you. And again, people are just in disbelief at this point. It started with their complete erasure, they being the Palestinian community, as well as by extension, the Arab American community, in terms of the rhetoric that the Biden administration was using, and continued with the atrocious policies that they've been leading with. So I absolutely think if they continue on the current path, it could potentially cost Biden the election. So from a practical point of view, then, it's not it's not as if Arab Americans are going to start to vote for Donald Trump if indeed he is the nominee because of his past history with the ban from Muslim majority countries and so on. So it basically means people will stay home. That's exactly right. That's what I've been hearing and reading is that they will just not vote at all. Okay. Let and I think, by, by the way, I think that they know this. I think that the Biden administration now understands this reality. They've been trying to call for various meetings with different members of the uh, Arab and Palestinian and Muslim communities, trying to kind of backpedal a little bit, placate them, say some nice things. But again, the best they can muster is we're going to talk about our humanitarian efforts and see how many more bottles of water we can get into Gaza. That's about it. And talk about any kind of hate you might be experiencing. But that's the extent of the conversation. As I keep saying, ceasefire has now become a dirty word and there's no mention of that. Josh, last question, unless there's any other comments you'd like to add. There's been a lot of discussion over the last week or so about ceasefire versus humanitarian pauses. Humanitarian pauses are a little bit loosely defined. And in fact, we haven't been given an exact definition of what it means. What is this reluctance to call for a ceasefire from the Biden administration? The reluctance stems from the fact that the Biden administration supports Israel's plan to dismantle Hamas and to ensure that they are not in a position where they exercise any political leadership or any political authority in the Gaza Strip. 
So the differentiation between a ceasefire is that it would uh, understandably leave in place the existence of Hamas before Israel has had a chance to completely decimate it. Whereas the way the Biden administration construes this humanitarian pause is meaning a pause just enough to allow a little trickle of humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip, but more importantly, enough time to allow for the release of Israeli hostages in the Gaza Strip, after which Israel can go back to bombarding the Gaza Strip to smithereens and continuing its genocidal actions. So this call by the Biden administration for a humanitarian pause is designed to undercut the dozens of members of Congress who have been demanding an immediate ceasefire, including Senator Dick Durbin, the number two Democrat in the Senate. Is it not better for the U.S. to at least be working with the Israelis and trying to temper some of their response in Gaza than for there not to be any U.S. input at all? Absolutely, they should be tempering Israel and restraining it and reining it in. And there have been occasions where we've seen where the United States has demanded certain actions on Israel's part. Israel has been forced to comply with those demands. So, for example, when Israel cut off all forms of telecommunications and Internet communications to Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, it was because of the Biden administration's forceful intervention that those communications facilities were turned back on. And that just goes to show the degree of uh, control that the United States can really exert over Israel if it decides to exert any political pressure. So the Biden administration needs to exert that political pressure in much more fundamental ways to demand an immediate ceasefire and an end to the infliction of so much harm against Palestinian civilians and Palestinian children that we're seeing right now. The U.S. has the power. It's not exercising it. Josh Rubner and Leila El-Haddad, I want to thank you both very much for joining me today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Headlines. For more information on what's happening in Israel and Gaza, please subscribe to get every episode of Beyond the Headlines, where we explain and analyze the current conflict and follow our coverage at thenationalnews.com. This episode was produced by Ahmed Isoui, Doa Farid, Phil Green and Arthur Edison. And I'm your host, Thomas Watkins.